many, many mitzvos. Uh, we're not going to be able to go through all of them. And there's also at the end of the Parsha, almost a, I guess we would call a reenactment in some respect of Matan Torah, of the giving of the Torah. It's repeated, and we're not going to get into too much detail about why it's repeated and what that's all about. Um, but I do want to focus on a couple of ideas, one being slavery. Slavery is discussed extensively in the beginning of the Parsha. And, um, you know, Rehurst says something beautiful. Uh, it's actually Mahatma Gandhi says a similar idea, and that is that you could judge a society by the way it treats those on the bottom rung of society. Okay, so uh, I'll mention in a moment some ideas about the, even the institution of slavery, the fact that the Torah seems to, while maybe not promote it, but certainly acknowledge and in some way implicitly endorse slavery, and we'll come back to that. But one thing that is very clear is that the laws that pertain to the slave, and it's important to note there is the Hebrew slave, there's the Jewish slave, as the Evid Ivri, and there is the non-Jewish slave, and they have a different set of laws. Um, and the, the, you know, when it comes to the Jewish slave, the Torah tells us that when you purchase, when you get a Jewish slave, it's like you've purchased a master. The amount of, you know, the, the Torah says, if the Gemara learns that if you have, you know, one, one blanket and there's you and your Jewish slave, you have to give it to the Jewish slave. That's, that's the level of respect that we have to give to the Jewish slave. We don't have the same obligations when it comes to a non-Jewish slave. Um, but I, I do want to just highlight a couple of unique features of the laws when it comes to a non-Jewish slave. So I want to actually share with you a couple of ideas that's found in a, in a sefer called Kanmonios uh, Halacha by Shmuel Rubinstein. Um, he makes the following point. You know, he contrasts um, slavery in the ancient world, the way it was, and what Jewish laws um, did to it. The way that Jewish law is, contra- is co- contrast with the classical way that people perceived slaves. So I'll give you one simple example. We know that when Shimshon, Samson, was captured by the Pelishtim, what did they do to him? They took out his eyes. Why did they take out his eyes? So there are Midrashic teachings about the fact that he perhaps looked in the wrong places and things of that nature. But the truth is, and you know this from watching any ancient Roman uh, movies, you know, movies about ancient Rome, the, what do they do to, why do they, what, who, who, whose eyes do they take out? Slaves' eyes. Why? Uh, it's a way of demonstrating the mastery, that you're not in charge of your life. We're in charge of you. And so when there was a significant, important slave, they would oftentimes take their eyes out. I know that sounds very gory. What is the Jewish law? The Jewish law is that if, if, whether by mistake, on purpose, if the eye of your slave gets knocked out by the master, you have to let the slave go free, right? So you see that what became, what was a symbol of slavery, what the Torah does is say that same act, which was the norm. That was how you demonstrate that you're a master in Judaism. That's what, if you do that to your slave, they go free. Another, uh, another example is that, uh, the, um, here, let's give another example. Again, I'm just, uh, I'm going to share the, the, the source over here. I'll put it on Facebook after, if you want to read through uh, a translation of this, uh, of this piece. Um, Another thing, we know that there is extreme violence uh, perpetrated against slaves. Uh, We know that from American history. Uh, We don't have to look that far back. In Jewish law, um, if a person in any way um, inflicts a blemish, an exposed part of the slave. So, for example, if a person were to hit their slave and a tooth would fall out. A tooth, just a tooth, not just a tooth, a tooth. A tooth would fall out, you have to free the slave. So again, what was the norm? Of course, and again, not the ancient world, not that long ago, when slavery existed here in America, hitting a slave, there's no penalty for doing so. And in Judaism, if you were to hit the slave and the tooth would fall out, even just a tooth, you'd have to let the slave go free. Um, so those are just some examples where the things that were seen as normal in the ancient world, uh, what we would do to a slave in Judaism, those same actions, which, which, you know, in other societies would demonstrate mastery over the slave. In Judaism, we said, yes, slavery exists, 
but we do not own anyone in the in the in the in the real sense that they are our property. Um, there may be some uh, laws that that treat the slave as ours. But certainly in terms of belittling them, humiliating them, what the Torah did was really move um, our, shift our perspective tremendously and ensure that we do not mistreat or abuse the slave like they were so often in the ancient world and the not so ancient world. Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is a, a very interesting approach to addressing, you know, the morality of how, how, you know, the question of how the Torah could endure slavery. It goes in the face of everything we believe, the dignity of man, etc. So I'm going to read to you um, a, a passage of his. It's a radical idea, but it's, it's something worth thinking about, discussing, debating. I'm going to read to you a quote. It says, uh, he writes, it doesn't say abolish slavery. Surely it should have done. As it, surely it should have done. Is that not the whole point of the story thus far? Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He, um, as the Egyptian Tzafnot uh, Paneach, um, threatens them with slavery. Generations later, when a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph, the entire Israelite people become Egypt slaves. Slavery, like vengeance, is a vicious circle that has no natural end. Why not then give it a supernatural end? Why did God not say there shall be no more slavery? The Torah has already given us an implicit answer. Change is possible in human nature, but it takes time. Time on a vast scale, centuries, even millennia. There is little doubt that in terms of the Torah's value system, the exercise of power by one person over another without their consent is a fundamental assault against human dignity. This is not just true of the relationship between master and slave. It is even true, according to many classic Jewish commentators, of the relationship between king and subject, rulers and ruled. According to the sages, it is even true of the relationship between God and human beings. Okay, the Talmud, etc., etc. Um, so slavery is to be abolished, but it is a fundamental principle of God's relationship with us that he does not force us to change faster than we are able to do so of our own free will. So Mishpatim does not abolish slavery, but it sets in motion a series of fundamental laws that will lead people, albeit at their own pace, to abolish it of their own accord. If history tells us anything, it is that God has patience, though it is often sorely tried. He wanted slavery abolished, but he wanted it done by free human beings coming to see of their own accord the evil it is and the evil it does. The God of history, who has taught us to study history, had faith that eventually we would learn the lesson of history, that freedom is indivisible. We must grant freedom to others if we truly seek it for ourselves. End quote. So it's, it's a radical idea. Uh, there is room for debate. You know, there are other great and challenging things which God did supernaturally abolish through law. But slavery, you have to appreciate. We, we saw that again through the Civil War. It was so entrenched. So much so much of our economic growth and, and stability was, was dependent upon. And so Rabbi Sachs is suggesting that God set the trajectory through these compassionate laws, ensuring that we treat slaves as human beings with compassion, that we are not completely masters over them, um, that that would set the, the pathway for slavery to ultimately be abolished. Okay? Take it, leave it. It's a fascinating idea. A couple, Two other uh, ideas, three other ideas that come up in our Parsha. Uh, one is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about restitution in this week's Parsha. And it's worth noting that, uh, that you know, in the Hammurabi Code, which is the other ancient code that existed in the t- during the times of the Torah, we find that there are differences when it comes to restitution. The king has to give a certain amount of restitution. This person has to give a certain other type of restitution. In Judaism, the punishment or the payment 
intent is equal. You know, the notion of equality before the law is something which is a fundamental part of our society, but its root, it starts in the Torah. The Torah does not distinguish between the nobility and the plain person. Everyone is equal before the law, and that is an idea which finds its expression in our Parsha, and again, becomes enshrined in our value system. Um, there is a commandment that we have to treat the the ger, the, the, the converts, with compassion, um, and that is mentioned 36 times. 36 times in the Torah. That is the most uh, repetitive, you know, repeated law, and that's because it's so fundamental to our identity, to our value system. The notion of looking out for those who are vulnerable, it's not limited to one particular population. It's a value. It's a principle that we always have to look out to those who are vulnerable. And along those lines, we find another prohibition in our Parsha about oppressing an orphan or a widow. Um, and the, the Kutzka Rebbe, Menachem Mendel of Kutz, points out that there is some repetitive terminology in the context of this prohibition. We're told, don't oppress an orphan, don't oppress a widow. And it says, Im a'ane ta'ane oso. It doesn't translate so well, but it means if you afflict, afflict them. Okay, it should just say if you afflict them. It means if you really afflict them. Im a'ane ta'ane oso. That re- repetition. And then God says, Shomea eshma. I will hear, I will hear their cry. Why the repetition? It's the Kutzka Rebbe points out the most beautiful idea. He suggests that, you know, when we pain someone, there's obviously an assault on who they are. There is the pain that they are experiencing when we do something, either do something to them, we don't we treat them with respect, we say something which is callous. But when it's, when it's somebody who already is vulnerable, then the suffering is, is amplified and it's by, by, in many ways. In other words, if you do the same action to two different people, one of them being someone who is vulnerable, one of them who is not, the individual is vulnerable, the pain they experience is so much more. They think it's because of their vulnerable situation. They think you're ignoring them because they are a widow, because they are you know, an orphan or whatever that, that population may be. And therefore the pain they're experiencing is doubled. And God takes that into account. You cannot say, well, they shouldn't have taken it personally. I'm not to be held accountable. If you know anyone else wouldn't have taken it so personally, no, we have to take into account who our audience is, who it is that we are speaking to, who we are perhaps not paying enough attention to, and that is part of the equation. And therefore, God says, Shomea Eshma. I hear not just the cry for what you did, but I also take into account who it is that we are mistreating. We have to be so, we have to be doubly sensitive and more than doubly sensitive to our vulnerable popul- populations, um, something which is always true. I think certainly true now. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a Parsha with a lot of laws, but I think if you were to look for a meta, a, a larger theme in the Parsha, it's one that it speaks to the, the compassion that we need to have, the equality before the law, the notion of every single individual having dignity, even those who are marginalized by society, and the importance of treating those who are vulnerable with an incredible amount of compassion. Hope you all have a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos. Thank you for joining. And I want to remind you all that tonight we are going going to be joined instead of a regular Parsha class. It's Rosh Chodesh Adar. Uh, I see some people here are in Israel, so Chodesh Tov to those who are already in Israel. Um, Erev Chodesh Tov to those who are here in Baltimore or the United States. And uh, tonight we'll be joined by Dr. Hinda Dubin, who will be talking about uh, how we can experience joy during these uh, challenging times. It will be streamed on Facebook. Um, hopefully it'll make it onto our podcast as well. I hope you could join me. So Chodesh Tov, good Chodesh, and uh, good Shabbos Chodesh to all. Tov, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much for joining, everyone. Take care. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining. Take care, everyone. All the best. Take care. Have a great day.